That's our pet bird chirping out there. We'll, we'll just leave it alone. Just ignore him. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for these people. Thank you for uh, people like Z-Way who have a heart to serve those who have a need of help. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work on people's hearts within our church body, that you would give us a sensitivity to the needs of our church, of our families, of those in our neighborhood and community and those abroad. Lord, as we open your word in Luke, I pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would fill all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Albert. And uh, welcome to Regeneration, if you're new here. And if you're not new here, still welcome. Uh, you're, you're still welcome. We, we are going to have a, a get-together for those who are college students or are in grad school or uh, in school. Um, so please join us for that. Now, if you've been in undergrad for more than seven years, um, we have to talk. We, we have to talk. And especially if you're a guy. We have to talk, okay? So no excuses. We'll, we'll just chat, all right? Uh, Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 57. We're, we'll finish up uh, the first chapter of Luke here. Now, do you guys have people in your life that um, just give you unsolicited advice? They, they just, they, you know, whether it's about how you dress or... Uh, how you do your hair or your makeup or what your living space looks like or what you eat, you know, the car you buy, where you live, all that stuff, what classes to take. Um, and if you don't, just just wait until you're expecting a child. Uh, because those opinions start to come when you're expecting a child. And if, if uh, you know, people that you've never met before just starting to give you advice on things, about you and this baby, and especially in Chinatown. Um, I remember when my wife and I were in Chinatown, and she's expecting, and man, we got it from everywhere, like how, what to eat, what not to eat, um, when to shower, when not to shower, how to walk, all sorts of stuff, just crazy stuff. And so do you have these types of people in your life uh, who can't help but to tell you how you should do things? Or what things you should do. Or, or, you know, they're not always bad people. They're just overly opinionated people. But they're not bad. And they just like to get in your domain. You know, they just like to get in your space. And especially when it comes to your children or your house or your education. They're not necessarily bad people. Just annoying at times. And this, this, kind, this is kind of what's happening here in this little village in Judea where Elizabeth and, uh, is, is giving birth to John here in uh, Luke chapter 1, starting verse 57. And it didn't help that this was this, this small town that, where everyone knew each other's business. So in our story this morning, we have the neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth offering their opinions on the name of their son. What name you, know, you should give them. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they already knew what their son's name was to be. It was to be John, right? It was the grace child. And the angel told them in verse 13 that this baby boy was to be named John, which means Yahweh is gracious or the Lord is gracious. And this is what God wanted. So you know it was important for the baby, to be, baby boy to be named John. 
Now what seems to be the point of this whole section of Scripture we're looking at this morning, verses 57-80, through 80, is that God's people need, needed to be reminded of God's grace. That the Lord is gracious. And if this is the point of these verses, what is Luke trying to teach us in this Gospel that he wrote? Well, Luke wants to show us that God's graces smash all of our conventions. They smash all of our expectations. Or they smash what we would deem to be normal. That all of those things are smashed. So let's just read from 57 through 66 here. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. See how God just smashed all of their expectations? All the, all the neighbors gathered around, starting, called, starting to call the baby Junior. And Elizabeth told them, no, it's not Junior, it's John. And this was just bewildering. This was astonishing to them. So much so that in verse 61, it's actually more emphatic in the original language than in our English. It says, none of your relatives is called by this name. Elizabeth, what are you doing? Is there something between you and, and Zechariah that we don't know about? Are you mad at him that you, he hasn't talked to you in nine months? Like, what, what's, what's going on? It, you know, Zach, Zechariah, his name is Junior, right? This is Junior. And they, they were making signs to Zechariah as though that, that would make him understand better. It's like people that talk louder and slower, you know. You, you understand? No, they just don't, they, they don't understand. But they're trying to use these motions like Zechariah was about to name his boy anything other than John after, this, after what the angel did to him. You think he was really going to name him anything other than John? I mean, you don't believe me? Be quiet. Can't, couldn't say a word, you know. Couldn't talk, right? He, because he didn't believe. Now, what do you think would have happened to him if he didn't name his boy John? Right? He was like, that's it. No more smell. No more hearing. No more sight. No more touch. No more taste. You are going to be a stump. Right? So, of course he was going to name his boy John. Right? Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and said, my boy's name is John. Ah. Praise the Lord. Right? The town, the town folk, they're just all in... Wonderment, But as soon as this was made known that his name was John, Zechariah was able to speak again. And the first thing he does is he blesses God. Right? He doesn't say, oh, that boy's so beautiful. And he doesn't put all the attention on that boy. Or he doesn't say like, Elizabeth, I meant to tell you I loved you for the past. No, he doesn't go to his wife. He, he blesses God. The first thing he does and so these people knew something was pretty unusual, that this child was different and out of the ordinary. And you see how these sequence of events are totally contrary to what people would expect. Right? Like, Zechariah, you've waited for a son this long, and you're not going to name him after yourself? He's not junior after all this stuff? No. His name is John. 
The Lord is gracious. That's his name. And yes, the angel told him to name his baby boy that, but I also think that the Lord wanted Israel to know something. The Lord wanted Israel to get something, and that is to know that the Lord is gracious. So John is sent first as the forerunner before the Messiah. The Lord is gracious. And that's something for all of us in, in that whenever the grace of God really hits us, when God's grace is right in front of our face, it is often beyond our expectation. God's grace often goes against our expect, expectation, just as the name John did for Zechariah and, and his neighbors. It, it just went, it went against their expectations. The grace was right in front of their face. And God is so good to us, even though we don't deserve that. And that's how God's grace is. It is beyond our expectations. It's surprising. And just like it was for Israel back then, that grace would be the word for Israel at this time, that the first they're expecting a Messiah, but God says, wait, understand something. I'm gracious. Grace. And how, how, how would this grace be surprising for Israel, you might ask? Now, yes, some Israel's, Israelites like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were looking for the Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah. But what state was Israel in at this time? For over four centuries, most of Israel's history was not of independence. They, they were under the rule of others. They were beaten down. They were oppressed by others. They, there, there were nations that were trampling on them. And they were just ignored by the rest of the known world. Right? Who in the world would care for these people? No one cared for Israel. No one cared for these Israelites back then. They didn't even have a state back then. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, Zion was called an outcast. It says, It is Zion for whom no one cares. But here the Lord is saying, I care. I care. I haven't forgotten about you, and I care. And yes, the Lord has chastised them. The Lord has judged them. And, and now God is shining His grace upon them by sending, him, sending them this grace child. John, prior to sending the Messiah, He sends this grace child. That Israel would get the point that the Lord is gracious and, and He is the forerunner before the Messiah comes into the world. And He, he first delivers grace. And when we say the Lord is gracious, I think, I think many times we, we lose some of that meaning. Many times we often think of it in terms of niceness. That the Lord is nice. God is, God is so nice to me. right? That the Lord is in support of what I want. That He's encouraging of my, my needs and my opinions and what the, things, the things that I want. That, that He wouldn't impose His will on my life. That God is available when I need Him. So, you know, it's just kind of like, ho-hum, just whatever. But whenever I need Him, He's always there. And there's no element of wonder. There's no element of astonishment because there's no recognition of the need of God's grace. And if we don't recognize that we are a sinner in the sight of God, that, that if God was to be just, we would deserve wrath. And God's wrath exists because sin exists. And sin is what separates us from God. And sin is, is why Jesus had to die to redeem that, to be able to reconcile us to a holy God. And so sin is a serious issue to God, which is why He has this disposition of wrath towards it. And some people have a hard time with how God can be completely good, yet still have this wrath 
have this wrath towards evil. If he's completely good, how can he have wrath? But having goodness and wrath, those aren't inconsistent things. For example, parents who feel wrath towards people who have abused their children. That's not inconsistent. They, they, they don't feel wrath despite being good people. They feel wrath because they are good people. You abuse their children. They're good people. They have wrath against you. And it is because of their goodness that they react against that evil committed against their child. It's the same way with God. God has wrath against sin because He is holy. Because of His goodness, He has wrath. Because of His righteousness. Because of, of His holiness. He could, he could not be holy. He could not be righteous. He could not be good without wrath against sin. That is inconsistent. But God offers us His grace. Right? And without grace, there's no hope. And, and that is something that, that is difficult for some of us to swallow in the 21st century, isn't it? Right? Really? People still believe that stuff? You still believe that stuff? How can you believe that? Right? That, that, that I'm hopeless without Jesus? I'm full of hope. I, I enjoy my life. That, you know, that it's only God's grace and mercy that I have hope? Really? And people have trouble acknowledging that they're a sinner. And you ask some folks and they'll respond, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And sure, I'm human and I make mistakes just like everybody else, but I don't make those big ones. I haven't killed anybody. I don't steal. I treat people really well. I'm good. I I treat people really nice. And it's all good. right? What I believe is good and what you believe is good. Everything's good. There's just no sense of need for them. The pride is killing them. And people have put themselves in the role of God rather than submitting themselves to what the Lord has said in His Word. What He as God has pronounced of Himself, people have just placed them, I'm God. I'm God. And grace is hard to recognize when that idolatry is in that place. You can't recognize it. You can't recognize that you're a sinner if you're in that place. And if you're in that place, you just won't understand the Lord's grace. Because you fail to see your sin. And if you don't see how filthy you are, you don't see that you need a bath. Right? And so if you don't know how sinful you are, you won't feel the need for salvation. But if it's true that I'm without hope except in His grace and in His mercy, when His grace and His mercy do show up, that is good news. I get it. I need a bath. It's time to get clean. Right? So that's the gospel. The message of the gospel exposes our sin, but it doesn't just stop there. Right? Soren Kierkegaard once said that some of the preaching he heard in his day was like someone reading a cookbook to a starving person. That's not what the gospel is. It's not just to simply expose your sin, it's to feed you, it's to clean you. But we gotta make we gotta show you that you're dirty, that you need it, that you need God's grace, that you need his forgiveness of your sins in order to kind of accept his grace. So preaching isn't just to expose sin, it's to point people to Jesus, that Jesus can forgive you, that he can reconcile you to God, which only he can do. And when we finally realize the grace of a holy God towards sinful people, that that becomes something that ought to be surprising. 
that a God, a holy God, would offer me something when I wronged him. And, and when, that, when that click happens, when, when something goes on in there, you, you see the emotional impact that that may have to you, that you, you've been burdened by all this sin in your life, all these things, that they're all wiped clean. The, is that surprising to you? It, it, that's the difference in knowing that you're a sinner. Something will click in you that everything in the past is, is wiped clean. And you have a, a, a relationship with a holy God now. How grace ought to make us feel. Back in 1995, I served at a Korean refugee camp for several, for several weeks in Southeast Asia. And while there, I think I've shared this story before, um, I, I stayed at the home of uh, one of the generals. Uh, his name was General Latu. And he was a he was a Christian man who who shared his home with me. He shared his food. He shared these stories with me every night. And he told me about when he was in this in this battle with the Slork, and the Slork were the State Law and Order Restoration Council of Myanmar back then. Now it's Burma. And and so he was telling me that he was up on this hill with his commanding officer, and and there are men. They were being surrounded by the Slork. No way out. They're on top of this hill. They're running out of ammunition. There's no way for them to run out. It is clear as day. So they, they, there's, there's no, nothing to cover under. There's no tree cover. There's nothing. They're on this hill because they're just trying to get away. And, and here they are. They're trapped. And so the general and his men knew that in a matter of minutes, we're all dead. We have no more ammunition. There's nowhere to run. There's no cover. But, but then... Then they got down and they prayed. And, and then something happened. Fog rolled in. They, for some reason, had a miscount on their ammunition. And, and then they were able to find their way out under this cover of this fog. The way grace ought to impress us is the way that it impressed those Korean soldiers. Right? Who, who saw that they were surrounded, that they had little ammunition, that there was no way out. And... And, and the reason why they didn't die was because something impossible happened to them. Who would have thought that there was a way out for them? And that's how it ought to strike us, that the Lord is gracious, that there's no way out for you. The, the wages of sin is death. There's no way out for you. You have no ammo. You are as clear as day guilty of your sin. Jesus comes down and He saves you. He provides a covering. He gives you a way out. He, and it, it should smash our expectations. It should smash our conventions. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that God's people have a God like that? God's grace is extraordinary. And it should be beyond our expectations. John Newton, the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he was once involved in the slave trade before he became an abolitionist. He has quite a history of uh, being a, someone that was fighting against the law. Yeah, he, he became a Christian. Later he became a pastor. And then in his study, right above his fireplace, he had, in, he had it in a plaque, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. And it read, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. See, Newton was always amazed at grace. He never forgot that. 
Now, how does grace strike you? Right? Is it something that surprises you? Is it something that causes you to, to, to be astonished, to be in, in wonderment that God saved you, that God gave His grace to you? His name was John. No one else ever had that name in the family. The Lord is gracious, surprising, causes wonder. It means the Lord is gracious. God is gracious. He smashes all those expectations. And some other things that God's grace is that, is that it comes wrapped in promises. And that it comes down in these earthly deliverances. Verses 67 through 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for, for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Let's take a closer look at verses 70 and 73 to see how God's grace is wrapped in promises. We read how Zechariah gets his speech back and he begins to, to prophesy. He begins to bless God. He, he begins praising the Lord. And in verse 69, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 7, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now jump to verse 73, where there's this other promise here that Zechariah talks about. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God has gone on record about some of His grace. It's kind of like He's saying, like, I'll prove it to you. I'll write it down. And some of His gifts He promised to His people are written down. Zechariah here is referring to two of those promises. Two really big promises in the Old Testament. One is the oath that God swore to Abraham, right? Genesis 15, Genesis chapter 22. And what did that oath consist of? Well... Two of the main elements to that oath to Abraham were a people and a place. That, that Abraham would have a family who would serve the Lord. He would have a people. There would be a people there. And secondly, there were, there, they would have a place. Those people that he promised would have a place. They were given the land of Canaan where they lived. Then in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7, a promise came to David that one of, uh, from David's descendants would sit on the throne and rule his people. And that was a promise of a person. So with Abraham, we have the promises of a people and of a place to those, uh, where, those, where those people would live. And in David, there was a promise of a person who would come and save his people. Now those were some really old promises. Right, when Zechariah is talking about this stuff, it's like maybe year zero. right, Or, or maybe 4 B.C. But, but, but when were these promises made? When were these promises made to Abraham? 2000 B.C. 2000 years ago. Not from our time. From Zechariah's time. That's an old promise. And what about David? What about that promise about a person? When was that? Around 1000 B.C. So, old promises. 
The promise to Abraham was 2,000 from Zechariah's, year, Zechariah's time, 2,000 years removed. The, the promise of that to David was 1,000 years from when Zechariah, when this stuff is happening. The Lord promised there would be a people and there would be a person who would come in David's line. Who would, who would cause that people of Abraham to receive the benefits that God had promised to him? That person, that Savior, that Messiah. Now who would have thought that, that God would keep these old old promises. 1,000 year old promises. 2,000 year old promises. See, God here is fulfilling old promises. And as Zechariah was going through all of this, there was a seed of Abraham. There, there were these Jews in the land. They had returned to the land. And now that all of this was in place, the person, the one that promised to David, was going to come. And the, the promised one of David's line was on his way to ensure that the benefits were going to come to God's people. That salvation and deliverance from their enemies and, and from the sentencing of death because of their sin was coming. God's grace came wrapped in promises even though those promises were really, really old. And we have a promise that is about 2,000 years old as well. Don't we? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. A promise made 2,000 years ago. That promise to Abraham was over 2,000 years old and it was fulfilled. That There was a promise about the person from David's lineage a thousand years ago from Zechariah's time and it was fulfilled. The second coming of Jesus Christ will also be fulfilled. The Lord is not only gracious, He is faithfully gracious. And what the Lord promised us is, is sure. It's something that we can depend on. That if He said it, it's going to happen. The things that the Lord has promised to us in the New Covenant, they are going to come to pass. And Zechariah lived out the fulfillment of God's promise made 2,000 years and 1,000 years before their time. Now how exciting to live through that. That, that you were in the middle of, of, of some prophecy coming unfolding right before your eyes to, to see those promises and maybe we're in that time now. Perhaps we are. That's an exciting time. Now let's take a closer look at verses 71 and 74 where, where God's grace comes down in earthly deliverances. Verses 71 and 74 refer to the salvation God promised to send His people. Verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. These verses are talking about physical deliverance. Right? And earthly deliverance. It's not just spiritual redemption. It's also a physical redemption. That, that, that's what the Lord promised. It wasn't just spiritual. It's also a physical redemption. Micah chapter 4, verse 4 reads, But they shall sit every man... Gentile and Jew, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Deliverance from your enemies. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and no, and none shall make him afraid. It's about God's design for His people to have total security. 
And it's not just spiritual security. It's also physical security. And none shall make him afraid. And maybe we have a harder time grasping this as people who live in the United States. Maybe we would value this more if we lived in a war-torn country or, or one that suffered natural disasters like a typhoon. Or a place where we experience physical threats more greatly. God's grace comes down to physical deliverance. Now, how does this affect us? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus will be coming a second time. And I know that there are differences in our eschatology and in the study of end times. There are differences there. I understand that. You know, when things happen, how things happen, uh, what happens. And I know there are all different types of thoughts out there. And whatever those differences are, I think as Christians we can agree on something that He's coming a second time. So let's not argue about all these other things. Let's just agree that He's coming again. And one of those views that I'm going to bring out, I'll talk about two of them, is that when Jesus comes again, He will reign on earth for an extended period. Then He will usher in this new heaven and a new earth. And another view holds that Jesus will come again and immediately usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And I think we can agree that, that it happens. That He ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And we can debate on how and all these other stuff, but we can agree on Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, that there is a new heaven and a new earth, I think. Right? It says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I think we can agree on that, right? And then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, aren't those things in verse 4 physical things? Those are physical things, right? Crying, no pain, right? Mourning. The Lord will deliver us from every enemy. Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 promises God's people that upon Jesus Christ's return, He will give us these resurrection bodies. Now what do we need a body for? Because we'll be in a new earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And the hope of God's people isn't that, uh, that, that we'll be a soul without a body floating around immortality. He will give us resurrection bodies because when the new Jerusalem comes down, it comes down as a new earth. Now God's deliverance isn't just spiritual. It's also physical. And we have a hope that He will deliver us from every enemy. God is gracious. He, we are completely safe and secure in God. None will make us afraid. And the last few verses address how God's grace reaches down to our guilt. Verses 76-80. through 80. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
Zechariah talks about his boy here, the forerunner to the Messiah. His name is John. The Lord is gracious. And he's going to be giving the knowledge of salvation to his people. What does the salvation to his people consist of? The forgiveness of their sins. And if you understand salvation, if, if you get to the core of salvation, it involves the forgiveness of sins. And we talked about how you need to kind of acknowledge that before you understand grace, before you understand what the forgiveness of sins is. And if you understand salvation, if you get to the core of salvation involving the forgiveness of sins, God reaches down to our guilt. And He reaches down deep in there and then He cleans it. Now, some would argue that guilt is bad. Right? That, that guilt is a bad thing. Guilt is not a good thing. You shouldn't have guilt. I agree with that if it's false guilt. If it's false guilt you're experiencing, yes, that's not good. But I think false guilt falls under a different category. I don't think that guilt is all bad when it's true guilt. When you are truly guilty, that's not bad. What God wants to send His people is the forgiveness of sins. If you don't know you're guilty, you, wouldn't, you don't want that. You don't know that you, need a, you don't know that you need grace. So how can we be clear with the Holy God if, if we don't acknowledge that? And it's only by the Lord's grace. In Ron Lee Davis's book, uh, Forgiving God in an Unforgiving World, he tells a story of a priest in the Philippines. And this, this priest was a, a really loved man. Uh, a lot of people loved this guy. He helped a lot of people. But he was haunted by the secret sin that he committed many years ago while he was in seminary. And he repented of this sin, but he didn't sense God's forgiveness. He, he didn't have a sense of peace that he was forgiven of this sin. And so in his parish, there was this woman who, who loved God really deeply, and she claimed to have visions of Jesus Christ speaking to her. And so the priest is skeptical of this stuff, and, and he wanted to test her, so he said to her, the next time you speak with Christ... I want you to ask him what sin your priest committed while he was in seminary. And the woman agreed. So a few days pass and, and the priest asked, Well, did Christ visit you in your dreams? And yes, he did, she replied. And he said, Did, did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? And she said, Yes. And he said, uh, Well, what did he say? And she said, that Jesus said, I don't remember. And if you don't think that applies to you, read Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God's grace reaches down into our true guilt. False guilts too. But try to not have those. But he reaches down into that guilt and he is gracious with that. And Luke gives us John the Baptist, the grace child. The Lord is gracious. Who ushers in the Messiah, who ushers in this deliverance of, uh, and, and from our sin, this, this salvation, the Messiah. God wants us to see that God is gracious. right? John, John represents a gracious God. 
And He wants us to see what that's all about. God desires to be gracious with us. And there may be people here today that just need to hear that. That you, you feel something's wrong. That you've made such a mistake or that you've treated someone so poorly. Whatever, whatever you're caught up in, whatever circumstances you're dealing with, that you need to be reminded of God's grace. That even before He sent His only begotten Son to die for your sins on the cross, He sent John. The Lord is gracious. Trying to remind you guys, I'm gracious. And I'm going to save you. Right? And so the Lord is gracious. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would soften any hardened hearts here. Those who can't seem to acknowledge that they're in need of a Savior or, or that they're even a sinner. For those who aren't astonished anymore by Your grace because it's just too common that we throw that word out too much or, or that we just don't meditate on it enough or we don't study Your Word enough to see what it actually means, how You've actually played in it within history. So I pray, Lord, for soft hearts. Hearts that are soft to receive Your grace, to receive Your salvation. God, I pray that You would have us care about what You say to us in Your Word and, and also be able to feel it, be able to, to sense the wonderment in Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.